Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Reggie Rizzo, joined by Marcus Path. Coming up on today's episode, bird drones could become a reality soon. And we take a look back at some of the cool stuff we covered this year. All that plus this day in history, we head to the moon. Coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. One satirical conspiracy theory may soon become a reality. Bird drones. If you haven't heard of this one before... That theory says that all birds are actually drones operated by the government to spy on its citizens. Peter McAdoo, the founder of the satirical theory, says the U.S. government killed over 12 billion birds in American skies and replaced them with surveillance drone replicas that watch you and me every day. He added that he came up with the concept because he thought that's one of the most outlandish things, end quote. While that may be far-fetched, the fact that we may soon have bird drones isn't. Some birds are very efficient flyers. We may be looking at their techniques to improve our technology. Mustafa Hassan-Alien, a mechanical engineer at New Mexico Tech, says, Through millions of years of evolution, nature has developed processes, objects, materials, and functions to increase its efficiency. So whatever we see in current life, it's a treasure of millions of years. However, when uh, we try to duplicate nature's process for flying, they found there are some issues. Hassan Alien says artificial material cannot replicate the actual flight of birds. When working on the process, he said the materials they had don't provide us the flexibility that we require to have more efficient aerodynamic forces generated by the wing, end quote. Part of the problem is that when birds want to fly up and forward, they can do that with the same flap of the wing. For drones, it takes two instruments, one for lift and another for thrust. They are trying to get more creative to fix this problem. However, if you add sensors to birds, that can change the way they fly. And making mechanical versions haven't been effective so far. Instead of trying to copy nature, Hessen Alien has decided to go right to the source. He's using taxidermied birds and attaching drone components to them. See, I told you, bird drones. This technique is allowing him to reverse engineer how birds fly. He is thinking of using this bird drone as a surveillance tool, but not to spy on people. Instead, he wants to use it to watch animals. They have tried using drones to spy on wildlife, but the animals tend to be scared of the traditional drones because of all the noise they make. Hassan Alien says most of the time, animals will be scared and scattered, and it puts them in distress. So this tool may help with surveilling birds and learn how they fly. They are hoping also to learn how to make better drones by studying things like wing structure. In fact, the coloration of some birds allow them to coast in the air better. The albatross feathers have a black and white design, white on the bottom, black on the top. That makes it so it heats the air on the top and generates more lift for the bird. Birds are also more flexible. Drones tend to have a bunch of motors and devices and sensors to monitor the environment. All those components create too many moving parts and can cause issues for mimicking natural flight. When it comes to birds, they have elastic ligaments between their feathers, and the fact that the bones are more pliable allow the birds to shift with the wind changes more easily. 
Shi Nian Ding is an engineer at Purdue University and has built a robot based on a hummingbird. She said one of the biggest advantages of the bio-inspired robot, the flying ones especially, is the resilience of the vehicle. They tested her hummingbird in a complicated obstacle course. Well, the drone had one of its wings broken off by hitting several objects, but it was still able to fly using just the one wing because, you know, it was a, a machine, not an animal. While we are still a ways away from realistic-looking bird drones, Deng says she thinks it may be possible in the future. Quote, maybe in the future, not so distant future, you will not be able to distinguish the real and artificial birds. However, she isn't thinking about the government replacing birds to spy on us. Instead, she said, quote, technology is like a double-edged sword. But I think I really like the idea of companion birds and a toy for kids. She added, nature is such a wonderful gift to humans. We should respect it and build man-made vehicles to do good things, end quote. So, Marcus, are you looking forward to bird drones? Well, I've got a lot of thoughts on this, Reggie. I mean, I understand where the scientists are coming from talking about, hey, look, we're going to only use this for good. But the fact of the matter is, when you develop something, technologically speaking, inevitably, someone else out there is thinking, how can I use this for a different purpose? And sometimes that might be nefarious. Other times it may not be. But it does open up a Pandora's box. So I don't know how I feel about it at the end of the day. Um, I, I like Certainly, there is a fascination with this from me, like just how incredible birds and nature in general are. And I don't mean to sound uh, hyperbolic when I say that, but for as many advances as we have made with technology over the years, we're still unable to truly replicate some of the things that are found in nature, like as you talked about throughout the story, the, the flight of, the, of a bird who's able to do very complex maneuvers thanks to the elasticity, the pliability, whatever you want to say, of their makeup, which just doesn't exist in machines like an airplane, for example. So I think it's pretty darn cool that they can do something like this. But again, <laughs> where does it all lead? I, you know, ultimately, we not being able to distinguish between real birds and drone birds. I don't know that I find that to be that <laughs> great of a thing necessarily. You know, that that kind of frightens me a little bit, too. You might be hesitant to do some activities outside, not knowing if you're being watched. Yes, yes, 100 percent. And now am I going to have to buy up the airspace over my house to ensure that, hey, this is a uh, this is a bird and drone bird free zone. I don't know how I keep them out, but yeah, it's it's a little crazy. Taking a look at some of the cool stuff we talked about this year, sticking with the whole flying theme. We're going to take a look at that transatlantic flight made using only sustainable fuel. Well, as humans search for more sustainable ways to carry out the daily tasks we've all grown so accustomed to, one multinational company has taken a huge step forward within the field of aviation. Virgin Atlantic, the commercial airliner founded by British billionaire Richard Branson, recently completed a groundbreaking transatlantic flight from London to New York using only sustainable aviation fuel. So what does that mean exactly? Well, sustainable aviation fuel is defined as a biofuel with similar properties to conventional jet fuel, but with a smaller carbon footprint. That per energy.gov. SAF can be made from a variety of sources, including crops, household waste, and cooking oils, believe it or not. And depending upon which products are used to produce it, SAF can greatly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Per a BBC report, the Virgin Atlantic 
landing flight was completed in a Boeing 787 filled with 50 tons of SAF. Two types were used, with 88% derived from waste fats and the rest from the waste of corn production here in the U.S. Now, it's important to point out that planes still emit carbon when using SAF, but the industry says the life cycle emissions of these fuels can be up to 70% lower. So the Virgin flight was initially approved last month by the UK's Civil Aviation Authority, with a number of companies involved in making it a reality. These included engine maker Rolls-Royce and energy giant BP. The flight was not open to the paying public, but there were a few passengers aboard, including UK Transport Secretary Mark Harper, who declared, quote, history has been made, end quote, upon landing. A Perche Weiss, chief executive of Virgin Atlantic, the recent flight proved that fossil-derived fuel can be replaced by sustainable aviation fuel. He went on to tell the BBC, quote, it's really the only pathway to decarbonizing long-haul aviation over and above having the youngest fleet in the sky. It is a really momentous achievement, end quote. Now, while this is clearly a step forward, sustainable aviation fuel still comes with its fair share of challenges. The fuel is currently in short supply and, of course, more expensive to produce, meaning flight prices would likely jump with its expanded use. Sir Richard Branson himself admitted to the BBC that it was, quote, going to take a while before there was enough SAF for everybody to use. Went on to say, but you have to start somewhere, and if we didn't prove it can be done, you would never, ever get sustainable aviation fuel, end quote. SAF is already used in smaller amounts, blended with traditional jet fuel, but accounts for less than 0.1% of aviation fuel consumed around the world. Again, that for the BBC. Aircraft are usually only to use up to 50% in a blend at this point. And yet, there are still plenty of experts who believe this move is nothing more than a stepping stone at best, given SAF, as we said, still produces at least some level of carbon emissions. The aforementioned Transport Secretary Harper told the BBC, quote, There are those campaigners who want to tell ordinary people that they can't fly. That's their view. They're entitled to it. The government doesn't agree with them. He went on to say we are also involved with supporting the industry to develop hydrogen and also electric flights for shorter haul flights. So all of that technology is being developed, end quote. He'd go on to acknowledge that using SAF is not the only solution, but said it is a really important step with those other technologies to make sure we can carry on flying and protect the environment. The UK government plans to require 10% of aviation fuel to be SAF by the year 2030. Now, if you're wondering about some of those other technologies that were referenced. Hydrogen has been talked about fairly extensively in recent years. In fact, back in March, a small upstart airline named Connect completed the first ever regional flight powered principally on hydrogen. The 40-seat aircraft took off and flew for 15 minutes, reaching an altitude of more than 11,000 feet. Hydrogen is considered a clean fuel source and, per the U.S. Department of Energy, can be produced from a variety of domestic resources such as natural gas, nuclear power, biomass, and renewable power like solar and wind. These qualities make it an attractive fuel option for transportation and electricity generation. In the case of U.S.-based Connect Airlines, the energy generated by the burning of hydrogen feeds directly into the electric motor. This means there are no batteries on board which drastically cuts down on costs, 
and of course, weight, which is always a consideration when you're flying. Uh, generally speaking, it's difficult for heavy machinery to go green since things like planes, trains, and heavy construction equipment require massive doses of portable power, the kind generated typically through diesel or kerosene. It needs to be not only portable and combustible, but also light enough not to disrupt weight restrictions. For that reason, passenger jets are at the moment limited to SAF or hydrogen. Reggie, like so many stories that we talk about on this podcast, this feels like a terrific leap forward, a step in the right direction. But at the end of the day, it is just that. And what will be more interesting, or perhaps maybe not more interesting, but equally important, is to see what comes next. Where are we in two years? Where are we in 10 years in terms of our ability to use SAF? on a regular basis. Did it list a cost in there on what uh, it actually cost to have this type no, of fuel versus hydrogen? No specific cost. No specific cost. It just said it is considerably more expensive, which obviously creates a problem because you're going to have to pay a lot more to fly with it. That's one of my concerns is the cost versus hydrogen. I, I don't know if it would cost as much. I feel like that's a little bit more abundant or easy to get a hold of. Uh, I do wonder, uh, though this is probably a weird thought, about the smell. Have you ever been on the tarmac just waiting for the plane to take off and you just smell that jet fuel? Do you know that I, smell I'm talking about? I guess I don't. No. I mean, I've sat oh. on the tarmac, but I don't recall ever having any I, sort of odor that ru ruined my day. I seem to get stuck by the wings a lot. And I have a, I, I want to say a sensitive, I'm sensitive to smells. Okay. So that, that smell sometimes really gives me a headache. So I'm kind of curious where the, the difference is on that, that. It's just it's can sometimes be so powerful to me. It gives me a headache as I'm sitting there. Yeah, that's wild, Reg. That's not something that I have experienced. Not to say that I've never experienced an odor on a plane. A lot of times it feels like there's no place for that to go. And that's not <laughs> a pleasant experience. But jet fuel, it would be a first for me. Oh, uh, yeah. Set that wonderful recycled air. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Heading off to this day in history, yesterday I mentioned that we'll be returning to the moon with the upcoming Artemis mission by the end of the decade with an international astronaut, but it was on December 27th, 1968 that Apollo 8 returned to Earth. While it's not the Apollo craft that landed on the moon, it was the mission that paved the way for that to happen. Apollo 8 was the first crewed spacecraft to leave Earth's low orbit and the first spaceflight with a human crew to reach the moon. Apollo 8 flew around the moon 10 times, but never landed. The mission from takeoff to landing back on Earth only took six days. It launched on December 21st, 1968, and it was just the second crewed spaceflight, Apollo 7 being the first, but that mission stayed in Earth's orbit. Apollo 8 was crewed by three astronauts, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders. The Apollo 8 mission was originally planned to be a test and was to fly in an elliptical Earth orbit in 1969. However, in August of 1968, the plan and the crew were changed. They decided on a more ambitious mission. The reason for this was the lunar module that was to take part in the test wasn't ready yet. However, the command-only module was. The original crew was moved to Apollo 9 as they were preparing for the lunar module test. That meant Borman, Lovell, and Anders had two to three months less training than planned. They ended up removing the plan for the lunar module training and changed it to a translunar navigational training. It took Apollo 8 68 hours to travel to the moon, and then for 20 hours, they flew around the moon, like I said, 10 times, which allowed the crew to be the first humans to witness and photograph the far side of the moon and get a picture of Earthrise, you know, instead of sunrise or moonrise. During the trip, they ended up making a Christmas Eve TV broadcast. They read the first 10 verses from the book of Genesis, 
It was the most watched broadcast at the time. Uh, with this successful trip, Time Magazine also named those astronauts Man of the Year for 1968. Like I previously said, NASA credits Apollo 8 for paving the way to get to a second trip to the moon with Apollo 10 in May of 1969, and of course the eventual moon landing with Apollo 11 in July of 1969. That moon landing fulfilled President Kennedy's goal of putting a man on the moon before the end of the decade. There were several more manned moon landings. They happened with Apollo 12 in November of 1969, Apollo 14 in February of 1971, Apollo 15 in July of 1971, Apollo 16, April of 72, and the last manned mission to the moon was Apollo 17 on December 11th, 1972. Of course, I left out Apollo 13 there. That one was planned to go to the moon, um, but there were some errors there. Of course, I'm sure you've seen the movie or heard of the movie with that as well. So there were some errors along the way as well. Yeah, those were some pretty critical errors, Reg, <laughs> in yeah. Apollo 13. Uh, but but a uh, just an amazing story about people coming together to bring those astronauts home. This entire history of space and space travel, like so many things that we talk about on this show, is is highly interesting. At least it is to to someone like myself. It makes you wonder where are we going next, of course. But using history to guide us, at, at what point are we? sending civilians up there. And I, and I know to some extent we have already accomplished that in the private sector by sending some very rich folks up into space to see what it's like. But I guess I'm left wondering, will we, by the end of our lifetimes, see what could be considered, at least relatively speaking, semi-regular space travel from, from people, from humans going up, starting a civilization. Just how far along do we get in the next 50, 60 years while I'm still on this earth to potentially witness it? Knock on wood, hopefully, who knows, could be dead tomorrow. But uh, but that's, I think, the, the biggest question I have from all of this and seeing how far we've come in a short amount of time. And then obviously how much unexplored space exists up there. I mean, it is mind-boggling when you start to try to comprehend that. I think a lot of those questions might be answered in the next four to seven years with the Artemis mission. You know, we, we can see where we are, where our advancements have taken us, how far we can get, how quick we can get there, how much material we can bring over to the moon. I think a lot of those answers should be coming soon, hopefully. That concludes another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Reggie Rizzo with Marcus Path. You can always reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. I have a link to the email address in our show notes as well. We'll talk to you tomorrow with another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.